Peace and greetings. You are now listening to What is to be Done. I am Sister Benaya of the Nazarene Messianic Party. We will be beginning a book reading on a people's history of the world by Chris Harmon. From the Stone Age to the New Millennium. Chris Harmon was born in 1942 and passed away in 2009. He was the editor of Socialist Worker and a leading member of the Socialist Workers' Party in Britain. He wrote many articles, pamphlets, and books, including Class Struggle in Eastern Europe, Explaining the Crisis, Economics of the Madhouse, How Marxism Works, and The Lost Revolution, Germany, 1918-1923. to Introduction Who built Thebes of the Seven Gates? In the books you will find the names of kings. Did the kings haul up the lumps of rock? And Babylon, many times demolished. Who raised it up so many times? In what houses of gold-glittering lima did the builders live? Where, the evening that the Wall of China was finished, did the Masons go? Great Rome is full of triumphal arcs. Who erected them? Over whom did the Caesars triumph? At Byzantium, much praised in song, only palaces for, in, for its inhabitants? Even in fabled Atlantis, the night the ocean engulfed it, the drowning still bawled for their slaves. The young Alexander conquered India. Was he alone? Caesar beat the Gauls. Did he not have even a cook with him? Philip of Spain wept when his armada went down. Was he the only one to weep? Frederick II won the Seven Years' War. Who else won it? Every page a victory. Who cooked the feast for the victors? Every ten years a great man. Who paid the bill? So many reports. So many questions. Questions from a worker who reads by Bertolt Brecht. The questions raised in Brecht's poem are crying out for answers. Providing them should be the task of history. It should not be regarded as the preserve of a small group of specialists or a luxury for those who can afford it. History is not bunk, as claimed by Henry Ford, pioneer of mass motor car production, bitter enemy of trade unionism, and early admirer of Adolf Hitler. History is about the sequence of events that led to the lives we lead today. It is the story of how we came to be ourselves. Understanding it is the key to finding out if and how we can further change the world in which we live. He who controls the past controls the future is one of the slogans of the totalitarians who control the state in George Orwell's novel, 1984. It is a slogan always taken seriously 
by those living in the palaces and eating the banquets described in Brecht's questions. Some 22 centuries ago, a Chinese emperor decreed the death penalty for those who used the past to criticize the present. The Aztecs attempted to destroy records of previous states when they conquered the valleys of Mexico in the 15th century. And the Spanish attempted to destroy all Aztec records when they in turn conquered the region in the, 19, in the 1620s. Things have not been all the different in the last century. Challenging the official historians of Stalin or Hitler meant prison, exile, or death. Only 30 years ago, Spanish historians were not allowed to delve into the bombing of the Basque city of Guernica or Hungarian historians to investigate the events of 1956. More recently, friends of mine in Greece faced trial for challenging the state's version of how it annexed much of Macedonia before the First World War. Overt state repression may seem relatively unusual in Western industrial countries, but subtler methods of control are ever present. As I write, a new labor government is insisting schools must stress British history and British achievements and that pupils must learn the name and dates of Great Britain. In higher education, the historians most in accord with establishment opinions are still the ones who receive honors, while those who challenge such opinions are kept out of key university positions. Compromise, compromise remains the way for you to rise. Since the time of the first pharaohs, 5,000 years ago, rulers have presented history as being a list of achievements by themselves and their forebears. Such great men are supposed to have built cities and monuments, to have brought prosperity, to have been responsible for great works or military victories. And conversely, evil men are supposed to be responsible for everything bad in the world. The first works of history were lists of monarchs and dynasties known as king lists. Learning similar lists remained a major part of history as taught in the schools of Britain 40 years ago. New Labour and the Tory opposition seem intent on reimposing it. For this version of history, knowledge consists simply in being able to memorize such lists in the fashion of the memory man or the mastermind contestant. It is a trivial pursuit version of history that provides no help in the understanding either the past or the present. There is another way of looking at history in conscious opposition to the great man approach. It takes particular events and tells their story, sometimes from the point of view of the ordinary participants. This can fascinate people. There are large audiences for our television programs 
even whole channels which make use of such material. School students presented with it show an interest rare with the old King's Dates and Events method. But such history from below can miss out something of great importance, the interconnection of events. Simply empathizing with the people involved in one event cannot by itself bring you to understand the wider forces that shape their lives and still shape ours. You cannot, for instance, understand the rise of Christianity without understanding the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. You cannot understand the flowering of art during the Renaissance without understanding the great crisis of European feudalism and the advance of civilization on continents outside Europe. You cannot understand the workers' movement of the 19th century without understanding the Industrial Revolution. And you cannot begin to grasp how humanity arrived at its present condition without understanding the interrelation of these and many other events. The aim of this book is to try to provide such an overview. I do not pretend to provide a complete account of human history. Missing are many personages and many events which are essential to a detailed history of any period. But you do not need to know about every detail of humanity's past to understand the general pattern that has led to the present. It was Karl Marx who provided an insight into this general pattern. He pointed out that human beings have only been able to survive on this planet through cooperative efforts to make a livelihood and that every new way of making such a livelihood has necessitated changes in their wider relationships with each other. Changes in what he called the forces of production are associated with the changes in the relations of production and these eventually transform the wider relationships in society as a whole. Such changes do not, however, occur in a mechanical way. At each point, human beings choose whether to proceed along one path or another and fight out these choices in great social conflicts. Beyond a certain point in history, how many people make their choices is connected to their class position. The slave is likely to make a different choice to the slave owner. The feudal artisan is the feudal lord. The great struggles over the future of humanity have involved an element of class struggle. The sequence of these great struggles provides the skeleton round with the rest of history grows. This approach does not deny the role of individuals or the ideas they propagate. What it does do is insist that the individual or, or idea can only play a certain role because of the preceding material development of, of society, of the way people make their livelihoods, and of the structure of classes and states. 
The skeleton is not the same as the living body. But without the skeleton, the body would have no solidity and could not survive. Understanding the material basis of history is an essential but sufficient precondition for understanding everything else. This book then attempts to provide an introductory outline to world history and no more than that. But it is an outline which I hope will help some people come to terms with both the past and the present. In writing it, I have been aware throughout that I have to face up to two prejudices. One is the idea that the key features of successive societies and human history have been a result of an unchanging human nature. It is a prejudice that pervades academic writing, mainstream journalism, and popular culture alike. Human beings, we are told, have always been greedy, competitive, and aggressive, and that explains horrors like war, exploitation, slavery, and the oppression of women. This caveman image is meant to explain the bloodletting on the Western Front in one world war and the Holocaust in the other. I argue very differently. Human nature as we know it today is a product of our history, not its cause. Our history has evolved, has involved the molding of different human natures, each displacing the one that went before through great economic, political, ideological battles. The second prejudice, much promulgated in the last decade, is that although human society may have changed in the past, it will do so no more. An advisor to the U.S. State Department, Francis Fukuyama, received international acclaim when he spelled out this message in 1990. We were witnessing no less than the end of history, he declared in an article that was reproduced in scores of languages and newspapers right across the world. Great social conflicts and great ideological struggles were a thing of the past, and a thousand newspaper editors and television presenters agreed. Anthony Giddens, director of the London School of Economics and court socialist to Britain's new Labour Prime Minister, repeated the same message in 1998 in his much-hyped but little read book, The Third Way. We live in a world, he wrote, where there are no alternatives to capitalism. He was accepting and repeating a widespread assumption. It is an unsustainable assumption. Capitalism as a way of organizing the whole production of a country is barely three or four centuries old. As a way of organizing the whole production of the world, it is at most 150 years old. Industrial capitalism, with its huge cornerbations, widespread literacy, and universal dependence on markets, has only taken off 
in vast tracts of the globe in the last 50 years. Yet, humans of one sort or another have been on the earth for over a million years, and modern humans for over a hundred thousand years. It would be remarkable indeed if a way of running things that has existed for less than 0.5% of our species' lifespan were to endure for the rest of it. Unless that lifespan is going to be very short indeed. All the writings of Fukuyama and Giddens do is confirm that Karl Marx was right about at least one thing, and noting that for the bourgeois, there have been history and is no more. The recent past of our species had not been some smooth upward path of progress. It has been marked by repeated convulsions, horrific wars, bloody civil wars, violent revolutions, and counter-revolutions. Times when it seemed that the lot of mass of humanity was bound to improve have almost invariably given way to decades or even centuries of mass impoverishment and terrible devastation. It is true that through all these horrors, there were important advances in the ability of humans to control and manipulate the forces of nature. We have a vastly greater capacity to do so today than a thousand years ago. We live in a world in which natural forces should no longer be able to make people starve or freeze to death, in which diseases which once terrified people should have been abolished forever. But this in itself has not done away with the periodic devastations of hundreds of millions of lives through hunger, malnutrition, and war. The record of the 20th century shows that it was the century in which industrial capitalism finally took over the whole world so that even the most remote peasant or herder now depends to some degree on the markets. It was also a century of war, butchery, deprivation, and barbarity to match any in the past. So much so that the liberal philosopher Isaiah Berlin described it as the most terrible century in Western history. There was nothing in the last decades of the century to suggest things had magically improved for humanity as a whole. They saw the wholesale impoverishment of the former Eastern Bloc, repeated famines, and seemingly endless civil war in different parts of Africa. Nearly half Latin America's people living below the poverty line, an eight-year war between Iran and Iraq, and military onslaughts by coalitions of the world's most powerful states against Iraq and Serbia. History has not ended and the need to understand its main features is as great as ever. I have written this book in the hope that it will aid some people in this understanding. 
In doing so, I have necessarily relied on the efforts of numerous previous works. The section on the rise of class society, for instance, would have been impossible without the writings of the great British archaeologist, V. Gordon Child, whose own book, What Happened in History, bears reading over and over again, even if it is dated in certain important details. Similarly, the section on the medieval world owes a big debt to the classic work of Marc Bloch and the output of the French Annals School of Historians. The sections on the early 20th century to the works of Leon Trotsky and the later 20th century to the Annalists of Tony Cliff. Readers with some knowledge of the material will notice a host of other influences, some quoted directly and mentioned in the text or the end notes, others no less important for not receiving explicit acknowledgement. Names like Christopher Hill, Jeffrey D. St. Croix, Guy Boys, Albert Sobol, Edward Thompson, James McPherson, and D.D. Kansambi spring to mind. I hope my book will encourage people to read their work. For readers who want to follow up particular periods, I include a brief list of further reading at the end of the book. Dates are not the be-all and end-all of history, but the sequence of events is sometimes very important and sometimes difficult for readers and even writers to keep track of. For this reason, there is a brief chronology of the major events in a particular period at the beginning of each section. For a similar reason, I include, at the end of the book, glossaries of names, places, and unfamiliar terms. These are not comprehensive, but aim to help readers of any one section to make sense of references to people, events, and geographical locations, dealt with more fully in others. Finally, I owe thanks to many people who have assisted me in turning a raw manuscript into a finished book. To Ian Birchall, Chris Bamberry, Alex Kalanikos, Charlie Hoare, Charlie Kimber, Lindsay German, Talat Ahmad, Hassan Mahad Dali, Seth Harmon, Paul Migar, Mike Haynes, Tithi Batakara, Barry Pavier, John Malino, John Reeves, Kevin Ovenden, and Sam Ashman for reading all or parts of the manuscript. Noticing numerous inaccuracies and sometimes forcing me to reassess what I have written. None of them, needless to say, are responsible either for the historical judgments I make at various places, nor for any factual errors that remain. I owe special thanks to Ian Taylor for editing the manuscript, and to Rob Huffman for overseeing the production of the final book. End of introduction. So please stay tuned with us and 
read with us as we read A People's History of the World by Chris Harmon. Thank you.